Hey everybody, welcome to the AFR podcast. Today we have Dr. Pruitt joining us. We're going to be talking about trauma arrests. The following is an actual 911 call. Farm to engine 19 rescue 13, engine 19 rescue 13, respond out to I-40 eastbound near the Salmon Tail exit, 13 firebox 8134. Caller stated two vehicles were run over by a semi. Tires went over the vehicles. According to 29 Delta 2 at this time until we get further information. Engine 19, rescue 13, I-40 eastbound near the Salmon Tail exit, 29 Delta 2. Advise on additional resources. Squad 2, squad number 2, I-40 eastbound at San Mateo, in respond with Rescue 13, Engine 19. Got some updated information. Uh, one of the vehicles is rolled over, possibly trapped patients. Two possible, possibly two trapped patients, 29 Delta. Dr. Pruitt, just wanted to welcome you and thank you for coming on. Um, I met you back in 2008. We were both working at Presbyterian back then. <laughs> I remember. <laughs> I had just gotten out of the military and I think you were a tech in the ER at the time. Mm -hmm. And from what I remember, you had gotten out of the Air Force as a captain and you were trying to get into med school. And since that time, you've gone off and you've learned <laughs> all kinds of stuff, become a doctor, and I have probably forgotten much of what I knew. I doubt that's true. Um, can you fill us in on the gaps? What, tell me about yourself before that moment in time and after that moment in time. Sure, yeah. Um, so I grew up in Albuquerque. I actually graduated from El Dorado High School, um, played volleyball there, and that ended up taking me to the Air Force Academy to play volleyball oh, there nice. for their team. Um, after that, I went on into the Air Force to serve as an intelligence officer, which was really fun and really amazing. Um, I did that for six years, active duty. I, uh, I worked with a F-15 squadron, and I actually got to fly in the J-STARS during that time, did several deployments to the Middle East. Um, but while I was over there, I decided I really wanted to pursue a career in medicine instead. So that's, I think, probably about the time I met you. Okay. Um, I decided to come back home and do the prerequisites required to get into medical school and worked at press as an EMT while I was going to school. Um, that was a really invaluable experience um, and a lot of fun, a lot of hard work too. It's probably the hardest job I've ever had. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. You're doing uh, moving patients around, right? <laughs> Starting IVs, Every moving time, patients. IVs, yeah. tech skills. Yeah. Um, got to see and learn a lot, um, meet a lot of people. It's funny, the people that I met at press during that time, a lot of people are still here and I'll run into them um, around the state doing different things. And it's neat to see where everybody's ended up. I think it is called the land of entrapment. Yeah, <laughs> it's true, it's true. But it's, it's really neat to see a lot of familiar faces out in the EMS community when we started together 10 years ago. Nice. Um, and then yeah. uh, real quick, where did you go to med school and your residency? And um, Yeah, so after the stents at Press, I did, um, I did get accepted to UNM Medical School. So I was here for four years um, for that, which was really fun. Um, did some rural rotations out in Gallup and Shiprock, and those were probably highlights of medical school for me, getting to see the rural medicine and what it's like out there. 
Um, and then for residency, I was fortunate enough to get um, accepted to go to Vanderbilt for three years to train in emergency medicine. Um, had a fantastic time there and learned a ton. Nashville's a really fun city and Vanderbilt's a fantastic program. Um, but realized um, I needed to come home, that there was a big need for physicians here. And uh, with my interest in rural medicine that started in medical school, I realized EMS is a great um, way to contribute to the community and um, the health of individuals and public health overall. And so came back home to New Mexico after I finished residency to do a year specifically in EMS. And that's when I um, started as a fellow last year. Okay. And can you explain um, what the being a fellow is and how you get kind of get to see what it's like out in the field for? I, I yeah, absolutely. I think um, being a fellow was probably the funnest year of my entire um, medical experience. Um, getting to run calls, go to scenes, see what crews deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. Some of the um, difficult environments they're in, some of the difficult patients that they deal with. I got to see firsthand a lot of the, the struggles and the very unique encounters that happen outside of the hospital. Um, and I think it gave me a really good perspective as I stepped into this new medical director role of really what crews experience out there on the streets. And I know it's not like like I was out there a ton, but I did. I do feel like I got a good taste mm -hmm. of um, some of the the challenges and some of the victories as well. Nice. Um, yeah, it's really nice to know that that our medical director understands. It's not all kind of like what you read in the textbook, you know, and understands that if you have some challenges delivering that patient care, that there's most of the time a good reason for it and. With that, you, you'll be able to better train us on how to, you know, perform better in the future. So, absolutely, uh, we appreciate that you've been through that. And with that fellowship program, is that here to stay? There's going to be one on each shift mm -hmm. for the foreseeable future. Yeah, this year we've just matched um, three more fellows. They should get here in July. So the way fellowship works is every July, basically, there's a new rotation. Okay. Um, and it, for the foreseeable future, I don't see it going away anywhere. I think, actually, it's pretty rare for New Mexico to have one of the best of anything. Having grown up here, I'm used to being like number 48 or 49 on oh, most yeah. of the lists. Mm. But I would really venture to say that our EMS fellowship and our EMS program here and our EMS system as a whole really is truly one of the best and most forward thinking in the country. And uh, it's it's hard to realize that when you don't get to compare yourself to other big cities as much. But having seen a lot of other city systems and a lot of other programs, I can confidently say we really have a lot to be proud of here. Well, that's great to hear. Yeah, I feel the same way, you know, with, uh, <clears throat> you know, not only the EMS side, but the fire suppression side of it as well. I feel like um, our department is set up really, really well and compares to any department. Yeah. Yeah, I would definitely put us up against anyone. It's it's really exciting. I'm so proud of everybody too. The providers they work so hard. They do a great job. Um, I'm looking for opportunities to highlight that because really, this is a fantastic system that we have here. Okay, 
And with that, do you have any an opening message, say, for all the field personnel? <laughs> um, I guess first and foremost, I just want to say great job. Like I've been here for six months now. And every time I'm consistently um, just pleased with a lot of either the charts I review or the provider encounters that I see on the streets, um, I'm very proud of everyone that's in this organization and excited for where we're going in the future. Um, uh, I love how there seems to be a really good focus on taking good care of patients and doing the right thing for them, sometimes in very, very difficult circumstances. And I've already seen a few of the changes just since you've been in charge. I know we have a new app now, which makes my job a lot easier. I can pull up drug doses. I can look up the pediatric um, drug chart and all the it, within the app. There's hyperlinks that I can click as I'm reading a protocol. If it says, you know, now you want to give Versed, I can click the Versed hyperlink, go straight to the formulary. So it's really convenient and user-friendly and I'm sure there was a lot of um, effort that went into that app. Yeah, it did take um, a lot of time to to make the new guidelines, um, but I'm hoping that it's the whole idea behind it was to be more useful for crews. So I'm, I know it's a big change for a lot of people because it's not the way that it used to be, but I'm hoping that people find it helpful. And also as questions come up, because it is such a big change, um, I hope people feel free to ask questions and clarify things um, as they come up. So one of the things we're trying to accomplish with this podcast is to get you to think about some of the serious calls that you're going to go on prior to going on those calls. It's a lot better to think about it before you see it. Uh, one of the most stressful calls and serious calls that you're going to get dispatched out to probably be a trauma arrest. So we're gonna start this podcast talking about the recent changes to the trauma arrest protocol. I'm sure if you haven't been on one yet, it's only a matter of time. There's quite a bit of trauma that happens within the city of Albuquerque. Um, so we're gonna throw out some scenarios and Dr. Pruitt's gonna talk through how she wants us to respond to those scenarios. First one, we're gonna have a dispatch out to 29 Delta. It's gonna be a pedestrian hit by a car. As you show up on scene, you see a 30-year-old male. He's got a deformed leg. He's unresponsive, not breathing. And that's what you got to go off of. So what are you gonna do next for this patient? Okay, well, um, trauma arrest is an interesting entity. It's way different than cardiac arrests. And when you see this person laying prone in the road, um, one of your first questions is going to be, does he have a pulse or is he breathing? Sounds like he doesn't. So um, the next uh, most important actions are going to be to reverse what you can reverse. So um, if the, say the BLS engine is the first one on scene, what I would like to see them do is um, either establish an airway with a quick LMA or try to bag or reposition where they can provide some oxygen, see if that helps. Um, the other thing is if, you're, if your BLS maybe start to expose the patient, put the pads on and get an initial rhythm. Do they have, is there some sort of cardiac activity on there or are they in PEA? Do you feel a pulse? Um, as ALS arrives, the next most important actions would be to decompress the chest. 
Um, and obviously anyone, if there's any obvious um, massive amounts of hemorrhage to control the hemorrhage as well. Um, those are kind of the things that we can fix. Blunt trauma is uh, has a very, very high mortality. It's upwards of 99%. Okay. If this person has um, experienced so much trauma that their heart is no longer beating, it's likely not even a surgeon is going to be able to save them. And that's what I remember from going through paramedic school is a, a trauma rest is very low resuscitation probability. Um, so, yeah. So blunt trauma, um, let's say you walk up to this guy, he's prone, you get the pads on, you control his airway. Um, you see that he's in a PEA of less than 30. I would say reverse what you can reverse. So think about your H's and T's, hy hypoxia, treat his airway, give him some oxygen, decompress his chest, stop the bleeding. And if at that point when you reassess and he's still in PEA, um, according to the new guidelines now, it's okay to go ahead and stop your resuscitation. This okay. is not a patient that's going to be able to survive. Um, and there's no calling MSEP, no calling the medical director. Yeah, this is a call. As these guidelines come out, we're trying to give more and more autonomy to providers to be able to think and do the right thing for their patient. Part of that is um, for this trauma arrest, I think the guidelines are, are clear enough that there's no need to call an MSEP anymore. Okay, so blunt trauma arrest, we're going to try to reposition the airway and you want bilateral chest arts. And if somebody hasn't done that, can you talk through that real quick? Through a chest about art? About the procedure? Absolutely. Um, so the reason that we do chest arts is when we're concerned that there's either developing or already tension pneumothorax, which is where air is building up inside the chest cavity where it shouldn't be. And it's compressed the lung and the heart to the point where the heart can no longer fill with blood. And we need to relieve that air. So we do that by making a hole in the chest. And in the pre-hospital setting, this is done with a needle. In the hospital setting, it's usually done with a scalpel and some other instruments to place a chest tube. Um, really, the whole idea is to relieve the air so that the so that the air is out of the chest and the lungs can fill and the heart can fill with blood and start to pump again. Um, there's two ways to do this. Um, you can either go in the midclavicular line, um, either the second or third intercostal space, right above the rib, with your needles, um, or you can go in the mid-axillary line as well, about the fourth or fifth intercostal space. All right. So that sounds like that takes care of a blunt trauma rest. Uh, let's talk about a penetrating trauma rest scenario. So for this scenario, there's going to be an 18-year-old male with a gunshot wound to the chest. Okay. And you show up on scene and this person is unresponsive, not breathing, and pulseless. Okay. So penetrating trauma arrest is very different than blunt, um, but penetrating trauma arrest is one of the more survivable types of trauma because this is actually something that a surgeon can intervene on quickly and maybe save a life. For us in the pre-hospital setting, it's important to consider how far away you are from the hospital. So um, same thing as before, you see this patient, let's say he's not breathing, you find that he's got a PEA of about 40. You know he's got a penetrating injury to the chest. So you still wanna adjust his airway, give him some oxygen, decompress the chest, because now you're really worried about tension pneumothorax. 
control whatever bleeding you can. But even if this patient is PEA, if you're within 10 minutes of the hospital with a pulseless patient with a penetrating injury, I would still take that patient to the hospital. Okay. Um, what they're going to be able to provide there is something called a thoracotomy, where the surgeons can actually cut into the chest and look in there and see if they can patch whatever hole has been made by the penetrating injury, whether it's to the heart or to the lung, um, to try to fix that emergently. Okay. So you can kind of, for everybody out there in the field, you can pretty much know if you're within 10 minutes of UNM or not. And um, just prior to your shift, figure that out if you don't already know. And if you're not within 10 minutes, then that's something that is not going to have a good chance of survival. So um, you're not going to want to be transporting that patient. It's the people that are within 10 minutes of UNM. And again, that's a PEA over 40. Mm -hmm. Then those are the patients that we're going to transport in. And hopefully the surgeon will be able to do something for that patient. That's correct. In that 10 minutes, we tried to just leave that up to provider discretion, whether or not they're within 10 minutes, because that's obviously going to change based on time of day or traffic patterns. Um, We're trying to give the providers as much room for their discretion as possible when treating these patients. And so let's say you have a, a young man with a gunshot wound to the chest and his PEA is 35, but you saw him lose pulses in front of you and you feel like you're close enough to the hospital, just because it's technically less than 40 doesn't mean you have to stop necessarily. Okay. So it's fine if you feel like it's in the best interest of the patient to get them to the hospital, then that's totally okay. Nobody's going to fault you if it is a PEA less than 40. It's just kind of a rough guideline to help in the decision making. Okay. So we spoke about blunt trauma and penetrating trauma. Now let's talk about uh, blunt trauma call again that is not a trauma arrest upon arrival. So um, say you're out at West Side somewhere, maybe 14, it's kind of far away from the hospital. There's a 29 Delta with a prolonged extrication for a 15 year old female. She's still got a thready pulse when you arrive and she is breathing on her own. So you decide to load and go. Um, but as you're transporting to UNM, she loses pulses in the back. So what are you going to do for that patient? Okay. This is a tough scenario. Um, but again, in the back of your mind, you have to say, okay, this is a trauma arrest. It's a blunt trauma and kind of start to go down that algorithm. So if you're stuck in the back of the ambulance with this patient, who is 15 and just lost a pulse in front of you, I would focus on the things that I can reverse. So again, it comes down to your H's and T's. You can fix her hypoxia by controlling an airway. You can fix her hypovolemia, which likely she's bleeding somewhere, right? So either that's a tourniquet or controlling extremity hemorrhage, or maybe in the case of a blunt trauma, put on a pelvic binder, or any of the places where you can intervene and try to stop bleeding, I would try to do that. In addition to um, obtaining IO access and giving her fluids to just, she's bleeding somewhere, she's losing volume, and um, give her fluids, uh, boluses to try to get her pressure up and refill that heart so that it has something to pump. Um, The other things that are important in trauma would be hypothermia, so try to keep her warm. And then obviously you're going to want to decompress the chest as well. I would really focus on the reversible things um, before I even start to consider 
um, any other resuscitative efforts, namely CPR. That's okay. the big, I think that's the big question. So we're so make. trained that we check for a pulse, there's no pulse, begin CPR. And we do a great job of that on a normal code. But again, it, we're talking about trauma arrest today. So can you explain the the thought process behind doing CPR on, a, on any trauma arrest. Absolutely. So it is difficult, just like you said, we're kind of trained when we lose a pulse to get on the chest and do chest compressions. The problem is trauma arrest is a completely different entity than cardiac arrest. In cardiac arrest, basically you have an entirely intact system with a pump that's broken, but the pipes can still work, right? And so we're basically, when we do compressions, we're pumping for a broken pump. Um, but in trauma arrest, the pump works fine. It's a problem with the pipes. And as we start to do compressions, we're basically, in my mind, kind of the way I see it is just pushing more blood out of all of the holes that have been created. And so it's not very effective. It doesn't help the patient. And it's not really anything um, that we can reverse. So that's why when you do have this patient in the back of your ambulance, it's difficult to not to fight that instinct to jump on the chest. It's just recognizing that this is this is different than cardiac arrest and you need to focus on the other things that we can fix rather than rather than doing compressions. Okay, another topic is when we show up on calls, there's the obvious death criteria. So if you come, you want to decide if this is going to be a non-echo or a nine bravo you show up and there's rigor mortis present well you're not going to work that code because they've been gone for too long liver mortis as well uh, decapitation as well as brain matter has been a go-to as an obvious sign of death now what if you run into a situation say you're on a 30 year old male who's got a self-inflicted gsw to the head but he's not dead so we've got this obvious death criteria met. What are we gonna do for that patient? This is another really tricky um, situation. I'm really glad that you asked about it because it's come up a couple of times. Um, this is tough because you walk in and you see a person with um, obvious brain matter everywhere, but you do your normal things. You get them on the monitor, you check for a pulse, and oh my goodness, they have a pulse, and he's kind of breathing, right? Now what do we do? Um, in that case, you have a patient that's kind of breathing and has a pulse. This is one that needs to go to the hospital. And I know it doesn't, um, on the surface, seem to make a lot of sense. But this is, this is a patient that is breathing, has a pulse, needs to go. So this is a load and go scenario. Um, as, as difficult of a situation as it is, sometimes some good can actually come out of these situations because these are typically young adults who have an isolated injury just to the brain. And um, depending on what transpires at the hospital, a lot of times if, if it is an injury that's not compatible with life, sometimes they can actually become an organ donor. So it's important to still, even though you think this might seem like a hopeless cause, if there's, if there's brain matter everywhere and you don't think it's a survivable injury, I would still encourage everyone to do their best to provide excellent care to that patient, get them oxygenated, keep them warm, give them fluids, keep their pressure up, um, do what you can do to get them to the hospital um, so that maybe some good can come out of this like pretty tragic situation. Okay. So I'm going to try to sum up the trauma arrest, and please correct me if I have it 
anything off just a little bit. So you, you are dispatched out to a trauma rest. You're going to determine is this blunt trauma or penetrating trauma. For a blunt trauma patient, you're going to try to do some kind of airway maneuver, either jaw thrust, insert an LMA, open up the airway. And when ALS arrives, you're going to want to do bilateral chest decompression. Mm-hmm. And if that doesn't, if the patient doesn't show signs of life after that, then we're going to call it without calling a doc or anything. Absolutely correct. If they if they don't regain a pulse after your interventions, then there's nothing more that you can do. Okay. Now, penetrating trauma again is different. So penetrating trauma after you open the airway and you do bilateral chest decompressions, you're going to throw them on the monitor. If the rhythm is PEA above 40 and you're within 10 minutes of the hospital, then go ahead and do a rapid transport of that patient. If they don't meet that criteria, PEA is going to be less than 40 and you're not within 10 minutes of UNM, then you're going to go ahead and call that call that right there mm-hmm. and don't work that patient any farther. That's correct. This is at the end of the day, if you're that far away from the hospital, um, you still have a patient that's not breathing and doesn't have a pulse. And again, there's not much you can do anybody can do for that patient at that point okay everybody so that's pretty sounds pretty straightforward uh so again thank you for first of all changing that trauma rest protocol to make it easier on us but also explaining it to us on this podcast um again if you have any questions dr prude is always available to take those or your fellows from your shift call them call your seven eight ask them about it uh if you have any questions on this protocol Again, thank you for listening and talk to you later on the next episode.